Oh, Father, you are a great God, and you are worthy of our praise. Father, it's good for us to be here together and to gain a perspective, to renew our hearts, to take away some of the callous and some of the grime that we've picked up through the week, to remind ourselves of who you are and humble ourselves before your word. So would you use this time now, as you do so often, to challenge us, and to grow us, and to teach us, conforming us always to the image of our precious Lord Jesus. It's in his name that I ask these things. Amen. Her name was Abigail, and she was a peacemaker. Do you know Abigail? Do you know what the Bible says about Abigail? It says, now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. Listen to this. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. (laughs) How would you like that testimony recorded in all of Scripture for all of time and eternity? Bad behaved, harsh man Nabal. I don't know if you remember this story. You don't have to turn there. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 25. I've recently used um, David as an illustration. And I reminded you that after the prophet Samuel anointed young shepherd boy David, the one who killed Goliath, anointed him as the new king in all of Israel, Saul had a real security an insecurity issue, and he spent about the next 10 years chasing David around the wilderness of Judea and Israel, trying to kill him. God had removed Sam, Saul from the kingship of Israel, and David had been anointed to be the new king, and I am sure, and in fact we know what he was thinking often, because many of the Psalms were written while David was in this 10-year window of time, fleeing for his life in the wilderness with about 600 Tough guys, mighty men who had come alongside him and were loyal to him, and they literally fought for their lives for about 10 years. Running from Saul, trying to avoid conflict, David did, waiting and wondering when God's will would unfold and when he would take his rightful ordained place on the throne of Israel. Well, at this particular time in 1 Samuel 25, just listen to this little story. It's quite fascinating. For about a year, David had um, kind of gone into this one part of uh, the wilderness in Paran. And there, this wealthy man, Nabal, who was harsh and badly behaved, had great flocks, many animals, many servants. And David and his 600 warriors went to that part of the country to stay out of sight from Saul to try to just avoid the conflict. While they were there, the the positive thing for Nabal was that while David and his men were hanging out in this section of the wilderness, David kept all the bandits out. And all of the, you know, all the ites, the, the Canaanites and the Amalekites, all the ites that would come sweeping through and steal their animals and burn their crops. Well, while David was there, they had a good year. And he and his men, not on purpose, but just the fact that they didn't want any trouble too, they ended up 
causing the whole region to have peace, and so Nabal had a really good year. Well, this particular occasion, what happened was David and his men were really hungry. They needed some resources. They needed some food. And they had their families with them, at least part of the time, and they had established a community there. And they needed some food. And so David brought forward ten of his men, ten of his guys, and he told them, you go to Nabal and you tell him that David has need of some food and resources. And David was strategic in that it was the time to shear sheep and they were gathering in the harvest. And so it was a time of festival. It was a time of fun. It was a a reaping of their harvest as they sheared sheep. They had lots of food being prepared. And David just thought that was a great time to hit up Nabal. And he tells his ten men, now when you ask him for help, tell him, remind him that the reason, part of the reason he's had such a great year is because we've been hanging out in his wilderness and in his fields and pastures. Well, his servants actually knew that to be true. They they hadn't been shot at that year and David and his men had helped them be safe. Well, the ten guys go to Nabal and Nabal acts like just a real I-D-I-O-T. And um, just dumb, you know? And he's, who's David? Why should I care about David? Did I spell that right? Yeah. And uh, he just said, (laughs) he just said, you know, blah, 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 get him out of here. I don't care about David. Why should I give my resources to him? And so forth and so on. And so the Bible says, That when the men came back and reported, this is what David said. And so David said to his men, verse 13 of 1 Samuel 25, Every man strap on his sword. And every man strapped on his sword. And David also strapped on his sword. Let me, when David and his men strap on their sword, it's going to get ugly. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 men remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, one of the servants who was within earshot of this contingency of ten men making the request for resources, had heard Nabal be rude to David's men. And one of the servants ran to his wife, Abigail. Remember what it said about Abigail? She was discerning and beautiful. Huh. And Abigail, say it with me, was a peacemaker. Abigail was a peacemaker. So here's what happened. Abigail rounds up all kinds of food, bakes 200 loaves of bread, gets all these raisin cakes and bushel baskets of dried fruit. She gets five goats and kills them and has them prepared, ready to put on a spit over an open fire. And she's going to put together a first-class feast for David and his men because the servant has come to her and says, David and his men have strapped on their swords and Nabal has made a fool out of himself and we're all in danger. Let me just read the account. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine, five sheep already prepared, and five sihas of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. See, she was discerning. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain... Behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. 
Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. And when Abigail saw David, she hurried down, got off from the donkey, and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and, on, and said, listen to this, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. What a woman. What a, say it, peacemaker. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant, referring to herself. Let not my Lord, and this is kind of interesting, uh, I suspect that this was an arranged marriage. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. Nabal meant fool. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. In other words, when you sent and made your request, I didn't hear any of it. It was only Nabal that did this. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you, David, from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, you are trying to save yourself with your own hand. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord David, is referring to him, is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in you as long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. She's speaking words of blessing to David. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause, you David shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation to himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with you, David, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. I suspect he's stricken not only with her discernment, but her other part of her testimony, her beauty. Blessed blessed be your discretion, he compliments her. And blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Abigail was a, say it, peacemaker. Interesting what happens. It's an interesting end of the story. She goes back home after David receives this gift. She has resolved the conflict. Nabal, the problem troublemaker, has almost cost himself and all of his male servants their lives. The peacemaker Abigail has interrupted his fleshly anger that flared up and strapped on his swords. She goes back, Nabal is in the middle of a harvest party and the sheep shearing party and he's drunk. She has the discernment not to speak to him right then. 
She waits until morning when he's sobered up and she says to him and gives him the account of exactly what happened and he strokes out. And he can't speak and he can't move for 10 days and then God stopped his heart and killed him. David heard about it and immediately sent his servants down to get Abigail and immediately made her his wife. One of seven total. Interesting, isn't it? Peacemaker. Are you a peacemaker? Are you a fool? Jesus addresses this subject in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 5, where we are working our way, and our text this morning is Matthew 5, verse 9, working our way through the Beatitudes. I want us to be challenged in our thinking today and tender in our heart as we receive a word. I want to tell you that um, I have personally been a, a bit taken by this phrase, our text, Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Here's another attitude, a beatitude, a beautiful attitude. That person who is broken in humility and mourns over their sinfulness and is hunkered down before the Lord, acknowledging that they have nothing good in and of themselves because of their sinfulness. They are poor in spirit, and yet they are comforted by the provision of God through Jesus Christ, and their sin is forgiven. It makes them very meek. It makes them recognize that they have not built their own lives around themselves, but they owe everything to God, and they are meek. And then they begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness until they are satisfied. And they show mercy to others because they know how much mercy they have received. And in that context, they are growing in purity of heart, and they hate sin, and they love righteousness. And, and as they grow with a pure heart, they become Peacemakers, verse 9. I have been asking myself this week, Vannard? It's not my real name, and it's not a compliment. Somebody asked me after the first service, now, is Vannard your real name? No, my girlfriend, Janet, coined that for me. It's Van and Nerd put together. And I asked myself, Vannard? Because it's a good name for me. Are you a peacemaker? Because it's with great confidence that I would say, I am a son of God. Did you see that? Blessed, happy, fulfilled, underneath the, underneath the outpouring of God's merciful blessing and grace because of the humility and brokenness of spirit, in a position to be blessed by God, is this one who is a peacemaker... And he will be a son of God. That is a prerequisite. Well, I recognize the fact that as a sinner, I've had to go to the cross. And there, in brokenness of spirit, I acknowledge that I have nothing good to offer. And I have received by grace, through faith in Christ alone, no merit of my own, no works of my own, a free gift of salvation. And that transaction that took place at the cross... That transaction included me being able to trade in all of my filth and my sinfulness, both that which I was born with and that which I've generated on my own. I trade that in and Jesus takes it as his own and then he gives me his righteousness as a free gift 
by faith, believing it to be true, and he substituted, took my death penalty for me, and he paid the wages of my sin, which is death. And I don't have to pay that penalty. And that's all about the love and grace and kindness of God. Praise God. And that's what makes one a child of God. That's what moves me from being an enemy who was once at, at war with God, turning me around and reconciling me and bringing me together with a holy God and making a peace treaty. And now I can be at peace with a holy God, even though I have no holiness of my own. I have borrowed, I have taken, I have unloaded for myself the righteousness of Christ. He did it for me. I didn't do it. But I humble my heart and receive this free gift. I'm a child of God. I'm a son of God. So it bothers me when I ask myself the question, Vannard, are you a peacemaker? Because peacemakers will be the sons of God that I'm, I'm much more confident in the role of being a son of God by grace through faith in Christ alone, no merit of my own, than I am that I have become a peacemaker. Because I just soon smack you half the time. You laugh because you know the feeling. So number one, is peacemaker part of, number one, my personal identity? is peacemaker part of my personal identity. It is what Jesus is teaching his disciples. It is what he is calling them to implement, to be in the role of peacemaker. It is, it is actually an outpouring of, of an inner working spiritual. Inner spiritual reality comes out and the godly person in Christ Jesus will be a peacemaker. So let's be very practical and, and let's apply this in kind of a real way. Let's just do an imagination. Let's say that an investigative journalist was going to do an expose on you. Each of on You're personalizing this. And they're going to put together an expose, a 2020 type look at your life. And they're turning over every leaf. They're looking in the old yearbooks. They know you. They're, it, will there be a clip Will there be a clip in there about you being a peacemaker? Because if so, you need to know it's part of your identity. You see, think about this. If I am a peacemaker, a peacemaker guards his words. A peacemaker would not be characterized by a sharp tongue, a critical spirit, or a hair-triggered temper. A peacemaker does not say, shut up. And other unkind, yet often socially acceptable words, even to those closest to him. A peacemaker does not look at his mommy or her mommy and sass back and talk back. A peacemaker is not ever described as an angry person. A peacemaker cares deeply about relationships. A peacemaker is willing to forgive and to forgive quickly. A peacemaker does not hold grudges. A peacemaker will have a reputation of kindness and gentleness and will have an interest in other people that is noticeable. A peacemaker does not gossip and backbite about others. A peacemaker does not elevate his own agenda without listening to others. A peacemaker is not haughty. 
A peacemaker is able to see through the eyes of others. He is not caustic or harsh or selfish. A peacemaker is not a racist. A peacemaker sees all people the way God sees people and values them as precious. A peacemaker recognizes the power of encouraging words. Are you a peacemaker? Is peacemaker... Is peacemaker part of your personal identity? Well, you need to know, point number two, that to grab your own bootstraps and pull yourself up, you know, I'm going to lose 20 pounds, I'm going to start exercising, and I'm going to become a peacemaker this this year. By the end of the week, you're going to fail in all three. Because you can't do it on your own. Number two, you need to know that it is a natural impossibility to be a peacemaker on your own. Why? Because of what's on the inside of the person. Because of sin. Sin is very problematic. Have you ever recognized that? It's even worse than you think it is. Sin is a real problem in us. And this is similar to our point last week on depravity. But I want to show you why you cannot, in a self-help manner, why you cannot, in a self-tutorial program, get online and learn how to become a peacemaker and for it to stick. Not this kind of peacemaking. Not the kind of peacemaking that is Christ-like. And we can help ourselves out reading self-help books. But what we're talking about here and what Jesus is talking about here is a transformation of the heart. Will you turn with me to Mark's Gospel in chapter 7? And and let's look at what Mark says in chapter 7. There are similar passages as this in Matthew, and we will be encountering it. And in fact, looking in more detail at this kind of thing, where Jesus talks about what a person is on the inside is what they really are. But in Mark's Gospel in chapter 7, I want you to see what Jesus says. It's, It's just a little teaching that he gives here. It begins with verse 14, Mark 7. Why becoming a peacemaker in my own strength is a natural impossibility. That's what we're talking about. 7.14, Mark's Gospel. And he called the people to him again and he said, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about that little parable. Verse 18, and he said to them, uh, you know, are you that dumb, thick-headed, you don't get it? Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Here's my favorite short verse in the Bible, in parentheses. Thus he declared all foods clean. That includes, according to my understanding of Scripture, Mountain Dew and Five Guys. All right? It's like, you're all paranoid about what you're putting into yourself. That's just going to get excreted out. And then he says, verse 20, and he said, listen, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, like Nabal. All these evil things come from within and they defile the person. We have a problem, people. The problem is we're filled with sinful rot. 
And it works its way from the inside out. It's why that eventually, even to the best of your intention at being a peacemaker, someone's going to look at you cross-eyed and it's going to make you so mad. And it won't happen. James chapter 4 amplifies this. James chapter 4, take a notice there. And let's, let's look again, or you can just listen closely. James 4, it begins with verse 1 through verse 10. Look what James says causes quarrels and fights and problems. Here it is. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. There it is. The opposite of peacemaking. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He goes on. More evidence that what's on the inside comes out and it's not very pretty. It's why two people who love each other so much can be so harsh and mean to one another. It's why we often would be more characteristic as troublemakers than peacemakers. Well, is it part of your personal identity? If not, you need to know that it's a natural impossibility to drum it up on your own I want to have a brief parenthesis, and it needs to be brief, and we are actually going to address this subject more at length when we get to the turn the other cheek teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. But the way my brain works, when I see this passage, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, I then want to, number three, ask the question of passivity. Are Christians never supposed to fight? Are Christians always supposed to just be passive? I really struggle with this question. I'm working on finding reasons why I can fight. That's my approach to Scripture. (laughs) Clearly, when Jesus Christ is Lord of our lives, and when the gospel is at work in us, we would be characterized by, what did Jesus say? By our love. They will know that you are my disciples by your love and by our obedience. And Jesus is teaching the multitude here, you're to be a peacemaker. He's going to teach them if somebody reaches out and strikes you, you have to turn the other cheek. My least favorite verse in the Bible. But I thought that it turned the wheels a little bit. Let me suggest three things that I think might be helpful because what we do is... We read something like this and we think about this matter of passivity or being a pacifist and we come up with all kinds of scenarios. Well, what about this? What about this? And I don't have answers to everything and I don't always know where to draw the line. But it occurs to me based on 1 Timothy chapter 5, you don't have to turn there, but I'll reference these quickly. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8, it says that if a man will not provide for his family, he is worse than an infidel. 
If a Christian man does not provide for his family, that he's worse for an infidel. I take that to mean more than bread, peanut butter, milk, and cereal. I take that to mean that my role to provide for my family includes keeping rain off of them. It, it means I will keep them warm when it's snowy and icy. It means I will drive safely and not rudely and endanger my family with my driving. I will provide for my family. I take it means their welfare and their security. So therefore, number one, I, I think that a Christian is allowed to be violent. Number one, when wickedness invades your privacy. When wickedness invades your privacy. Now we're going to want to know what parameters that is. And what I'm thinking particularly is that you are in your shelter and you're at home and you're at your dinner table or it's the middle of the night and wickedness breaks through your glass patio door and comes in to maraud and to molest and to ruin and murder your family, you have a responsibility to stop them. And I suspect it's not just the time to pray for them, it's the time to do something to them. And that's part of the provision for your family. There's all kinds of scenarios. But when wickedness invades your privacy, secondly, I find in Scripture evidence that those who are strong are to protect those who are weak. And in Proverbs chapter 31, verse 8, for example, it says that we are to speak up for those who have no voice for themselves, and we are to protect those who are innocent. And so number two, I think that we have a right to not be passive when weakness is being plundered. When weakness is being exploited and plundered. Someone who cannot help themselves... Finally, making the news is a point that I referenced maybe in the early service a few weeks ago in Nigeria, not far from where Tom and Heidi Jesserin have ministered, about three weeks ago on a, um, a school morning when uh, 14 to 17-year-old girls were at a girls' school, Christian school, were being tested and held, they were in a testing arena They had armed guards. The armed guards were killed and Muslim bandits came in and took all of them. The numbers are somewhere upwards of 300 now were taken. There was a march in Washington, D.C. yesterday to try to bring some light on this. The world is not paying attention to what happened. I suspect if Christians had taken... I won't even go there. But if um, you're an armed guard and you're at a school and, and terrorists come to steal these girls, your job is to stop them. That's what your job is. If you have a little boy or a little girl, and you come upon a wicked neighbor doing them harm, your job is to stop them. You're not to be passive. Your job is not to carry out justice at that point. That's not our calling. But our job is to stop it. It's why Samuel Colt invented the peacemaker. Because sometimes it's the only way to make peace. You're not weak if you're a peacemaker. Thirdly, is when wrongdoers are being prosecuted. A third arena in which Christians can be more than pacifists is when wrongdoers are being prosecuted. Romans chapter 13, verse 4, talks about 
the role of government and the government's role in wielding the sword of judgment, which includes capital punishment, it is okay for a Christian to serve in a law enforcement type role or a militaristic type role under the authority of government and to carry out tasks. Now, I did not answer a thousand and one questions. And I don't want to take it farther than it ought to be taken, but I know that some like me, like I, my mind um, whirls with questions when I am called to be a peacemaker. Is it a call to passivity? Because some who do not understand the scriptures and who actually are critical of Christians will use this verse. The world knows this verse. And they say that you have to be a peacemaker no matter what. And that you are like um, someone that they can rub their feet on, wipe their feet on. We will talk more about this subject later because it is an interesting and an important and an ever, it, it ever grows in importance in our culture today. How do I now live in this world? And, and how do I carry myself? Well, one thing I know for sure is that in the expose that the investigative journalist is carrying out, somewhere along the line, they ought to be impressed with my peacemaking attitudes. Finally, in number four, I want to say, what is my spiritual responsibility? How, do I, how does this happen? It's a spiritual dynamic. So... If it's a natural impossibility to make this part of my identity, what is my responsibility? And spiritually, how does this happen? Let us very quickly wrap this up. But first of all, number one, my spiritual responsibility to implement the dynamic of being a peacemaker is that I, number one, I come to the cross. I have to come to the cross. Here's what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, it is a really interesting passage, and we're jumping right into the middle of a context. Let me just begin with verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 16 says that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. Here's why we need to come to the cross. Number one, at the cross is where we reconcile with God and the God of all peace becomes our God. At the cross is where Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace, becomes our Lord and Savior. At the cross is where our heart of stone becomes soft. At the cross is where our dark heart of sin becomes forgiven and becomes a tender heart of righteousness. And so our relationship with God at the cross is reconciled. But in this context, you need to know that bringing the parties together, that being, being, having been brought near, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace who has made us both one. Who's both? In this context, it's a racial issue. And it was the Jews and the Gentiles. And the Jews were saying Gentiles couldn't be saved and that only the blood of Christ was for Jewish blood. 
And only the Jews could be saved. And Paul is saying, at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. And it's for all people. And it's at the foot of the cross where true reconciliation takes place. If you haven't been to the cross, you probably don't clear up your problems very easily. If ever. It's at the foot of the cross where a husband and a wife who are heading to divorce court can reconcile and only at the foot of the cross. It's at the foot of the cross where two people who once hated each other. I recently read a testimony of a tribal leader in North Africa who was known for his killing all through the 80s and 90s. He butchered people. He came to the cross. He reconciled with God. And now he's reconciling with the people whose children and wives and brothers and husbands he murdered. It's at the foot of the cross where we become peacemakers. Come to the cross. Secondly, in Galatians 5.22, you don't have to turn there. I'll, I'll read quickly. The fruit of the Spirit is what? The fruit of the Spirit is love, and it is joy, and it is, say the next word, peace. So the second thing that has to happen if I'm going to be a peacemaker is the Spirit of God has to have enough liberty to accomplish His work in me so that the fruit is growing and developing in me. That means I'm not dominated by my flesh. That's what Galatians 5 talks about. About how our flesh is at war with the Spirit of God in us. And that if we're led by the Spirit of of God, we are no longer under the dominion of the law of the flesh. He says the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rival... Here, listen to this. If you're a troublemaker, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, that's all the converse of peacemaking. He goes on to say, drunkenness, orgies, and the things like these... I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Praise God that the Spirit of God can come into me and He indwells me. If I allow Him, I yield myself over to the Spirit of God. Grow your fruit in me. I'm embarrassed sometimes. You know how long I've been a Christian already? I've been a Christian for 48 years. You would think there would be more fruit showing. For 48 years. When I was five years old, I knelt by my dad after family devotions, and I remembered as clear as can be. And I prayed and asked Jesus into my life. And I understood it. And I've always understood it since then. I've grown in my understanding. But I look around and I see people who've only been saved a few years and I see sometimes a yieldedness to the Spirit. Praise God for that. You know, the longer you're a Christian, the more the fruit should show. The Spirit of God's had time to work. Come to the cross. Let the Holy Spirit of God do His work in you. Number three... Learn daily to live out Scripture. With this we close. Romans chapter 12. Great passage of Scripture. Romans chapter 12, beginning with verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. That's the next beatitude. 
Paul got that from Jesus. Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Troublemakers. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. That's a peacemaker. Live in harmony with one another. Be Abigail. Do not be haughty like Nabal, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to all to do, to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, it's right there. How come in my kitchen on Tuesday morning I don't remember this passage? I'm grouchy with my boy as he goes off to school for no very good reason. And instead of being a peacemaker, I'm an agitator. You see? Yeah, you know, right? Because you're tired, you don't have to be a peacemaker? Now, Paul's instruction is very clear, see? And the Word of God speaks very clearly to the child of God as to how he should live his life. It's why we need to be saturated in the Word, so that we think it, we know it, we live it out. Let's bow in prayer. And so, Father, would you convict us and show us our need to be humble and broken in spirit, to be meek and to be lowly, that we would overcome pride and arrogance, that we would die to the flesh, and that the Spirit of God would just be growing beautiful fruit in our lives. Father, would you take us to Calvary, to the cross. Thank you for the model of our Lord Jesus, the ultimate peacemaker, the one who laid aside his entire agenda and yielded himself over to the Father's will to make peace. Thank you for beautiful Abigail demonstrating in difficult circumstances what it means to be a peacemaker. Father, for those living with a Nabal here today, would you give them a special grace? For those who find themselves in circumstances that are so uncomfortable, whether it be a spouse or a child, a co-worker or a boss, would you empower us and show us the joy of humbly being peacemakers, of having discernment like Abigail to know when to be strong and when to yield over, that we would have a discernment to recognize our circumstances. We need your help. We need your strength. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and your patience with us as you work out your salvation through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.